Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to the next episode of X Chateau, podcast for navigating the business of wine. Today we're doing our first interview with Lauren McFate of Trebeca Wine Merchants. Thanks for being on with us, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your wine background and Tribeca Wine Merchants? Absolutely. So as you said, I am the Director of Sales at Tribeca Wine Merchants, which is a retailer downtown Manhattan. And I've been there for four years, before which I was in Hong Kong. And I was the Communications and Events Director for Ginsberg & Chan, which was similar. It was a fine wine merchant with a focus on the world's greatest wines, the DRCs and the Dujacs and all that. So you got to drink a lot of good wine. I got to drink a lot of good wine. And that was it. So my start in wine was in Hong Kong, which if anybody's been over there, it's kind of the wild, wild west of wine. Coming to New York is the exact opposite. We are so heavily restricted and regulated in everything we do. So that's been interesting, especially working in kind of very similar businesses. I've been there for four years. And Tribeca Wine Merchants, that's what we do. We do fine wine. I would say probably 80% of our business is through email offers and private client sales. When I've been to the store, which is quite small, is maybe a thousand square feet. I think it's 1200 on the ground floor. Yeah. And it is small, but we do have a brick and mortar store as you are legally required to in New York state. So I'd say probably about 20% of our business, maybe a little less even is through walk-in sales. And of those customers, be hard to say, but probably more than half are local regulars. They're people that live in the neighborhood and come in once, twice a week to pick up their wines. And then you do have a little bit of the tourist component because we are very far downtown near the Trade Center and a lot of the banks, Wall Street. This is mid-May 2020 when we're recording. And for the last two months, the entire country pretty much, but especially New York City and Manhattan have been under lockdown with the COVID pandemic. What were the immediate changes that happened when all those orders came into place? New York shut down. So specific to me, it was a little bit interesting. So I went over to Asia and ran a marathon in Bhutan. And so I came back March 9th and went immediately into quarantine because I'd been traveling, which was supposed to be two weeks. And so that was a Tuesday. And then I think by Friday, all of New York, it was Friday the 13th, pretty much all of New York was shut down. You're staying home, working from home. And so the week immediately following and the last two weeks of March, it was a ghost town. Emails were silent. People weren't coming into the store. It was horrible. It's honestly like you send out an email and, you know, I would forward it to people and you'd check up on your clients and nobody wanted to talk to you. I think everybody was in just total shock and didn't know what was going to happen. Where as time went on, I think it became clear what was really happening, especially in Tribeca, is people left Manhattan. We work in a very residential, wealthy neighborhood and everybody has houses outside the city. They went to the Hamptons, they went to Catskills, their parents, wherever. So, I mean, immediately the store was quiet. We definitely were one of the last in Tribeca to keep our doors open. I think it was probably like, you know, the second or third week of this sheltering in place and staying home where a lot of the stores said, we can't do this. And so they, you know, curbside pickup only. We stayed open through the end of April. I think it was April 27th when we finally said, we can't do this. You were allowed to stay open because you're classified as an essential business. We were deemed an essential business, all wine stores. Did you uh, require masks and things like that when people were coming in the store at that point? Or was it limit the number of people that could come into the store at that time? 
it was all very gradual, right? So one at a time, things were implemented. So at first it was, you know, no more than five people in the store at a time. And then it was only two people at a time. And then no touching the bottles. You know, you can point or you can tell us what you want. We'll grab it off the shelf. Nobody was touching the credit card machine. We'll bag it for you, hand it to the bag. And then the masks, I think, were probably the last to come online. And yet you have to wear a mask. It was actually really interesting how many people try to come in and you would say, you know, you have to wear a mask and they'd get upset and be like, oh, come on. And, you know, trying to reason with you and get their way in. And, you know, I'm... Did you ask him to point from a distance? (laughs) I'm not so strict on it, but, you know, my colleagues, everybody's scared. So we would kick people out and you made them stay on the street. It's interesting because you spent that time in Hong Kong when there's been various things like bird flu and SARS. Mask culture, when anything kind of goes down, is pretty common there. And people very quickly get to the point where they just get rid of the mask because they've been through one of these before. Being an expat, you know, I never wore a mask. I lived in Korea before I went to Hong Kong and I was there during the swine flu teaching kindergarten. And so I remember like all of a sudden they came in one day and they're like, everybody, students and teachers have to wear masks. And I was like, well, how am I going to teach English to a four-year-old wearing a mask? <laughs> like, And you don't, you play games. But Hong Kong, everybody wears masks. Nobody talks to it. Like, it's just not a big deal. But even from people I know, expats in Hong Kong right now, they said it's kind of like New York now. Like there is this public shame if you're not wearing one, which is interesting. In New York, that is very much the case now. I live in Brooklyn and it is, if you're not wearing a mask, you're going to hear about it. And I feel like at the beginning of May in San Francisco, people had started to wear masks more commonly. It was pretty frequent. And almost just a couple of weeks later, as the country is starting to open up again, I see it less frequently now. We never hit the total saturation where everyone's wearing a mask. And to me, it feels weird because it's like half the people are wearing it, half the people aren't. Like, what is going on here? Are you not required to in stores? In stores you are. I mean, outside, on the street, in a crowded street even, it's very inconsistent. And I think that inconsistency creates more separation between people. Yeah, I agree. And even myself, I mean, I'm a runner and I like to cycle and things like that. And I don't wear it when I'm running and purely because it's hot, you know, it's uncomfortable. And, you know, you get looks and you see people, but you try to keep your distance. But in stores, I mean, everybody wears it. You have to. But so basically, so we shut our doors end of April because we were down to a skeleton staff. You know, we had one guy shipping, one guy processing orders, and then myself and the owner were working from home via email. And so for two people to, you know, do the daily business of sales and then clean up after everybody and then, you know, kind of police who's coming in and out, it's emotionally and it was physically taxing and it was just too much. So we've closed now. The owner, Ben, is now back in the store. And so I think probably in the next few weeks, we will open to the public again. But I know for a fact, nobody else in Tribeca has. It's all still curbside. And even, I think, largely in Brooklyn. So you're saying that 80% of your business was largely from email newsletters. How has that changed with coronavirus? Are you getting the same purchases? Is the same response rate? How has that changed with COVID? It's been really interesting actually to watch because it varies week to week. That's always kind of true in fine wine, right? Like some things just hit and you can have one person come in and have some mega sale and it kind of skews your numbers. But it's very clear March, we were down not quite 50%, but almost. And you know, you're reading in the headlines, you hear about, you know, wine.com and all these big things and they're having like their best month ever and they're just booming. And it's not true for the little independents. It's maybe true for a few of them, but most people, they're hurt. You know, people aren't out. They don't want to leave their homes, even though you do delivery service and things like this, you know, it's a different scale. So the emails and that fine wine in March just evaporated. That's when the economy was 
absolutely tanking. And I think a large percentage of our consumer base work in finance. And even if you don't, you know, you're still concerned. So I think a lot of that was just uncertainty. We came back in April and it was down from the past few years, but not huge, devastating like March was. And now May, halfway through, we're about on par with normal. But I will say just empirically, like it just feels like so much more hustle to get the same sales. And the things that we're offering are a little bit different. And this tariff issue is really maybe even more significant than COVID on our sales because a piece of what we bought before was in Europe and it still is a bit, but you know, you can't buy white burgundy. You can't buy burgundy now. It's 25% more expensive from where it already was. Well, and tariffs were probably the big story coming into 2020 with 25% from certain countries in Europe, 14% and under, and the potential to expand a hundred percent from all of Europe. So you're saying there's still impacts of that happening. So the 25 is still there and happening and Burgundy already being so expensive as it is, 25% just put it over people's budget or so people just aren't adjusting to that new normal? Exactly. You have historic buyers, especially in Burgundy. Burgundy and Bordeaux, you know, you have the people that come back every year, they buy the new vintage. And somebody that's used to paying whatever, and it's consistently going up, you know, 5 10% a year anyway. Some cases, I remember Paromino a few years ago from, it was a 2015 vintage, the 2016 doubled. And we sold, I can't even tell you how much we sold in 2015, 2016, better ratings, whatever, and couldn't sell it, didn't sell a bottle because people won't tolerate it. You know, these are smart, educated people. You're not going to overpay for something, even if you love it. There are other wines. But the gradual 5, 10% a year, that's okay. And they can stomach that. But when you have a huge jump, like 100%, that is just too much change for consumers to absorb. We're not talking about tariffs there. We're talking just supply demand with that 100% pop, right? It wasn't actually. It was the wholesale cost went up. It doubled. It is different because DRC and Loire and Dujac and you know these top Rousseau, the wholesale price does increase, but it doesn't double overnight. And there's still large margin to be made there. And maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but no, it doesn't double overnight. You should overnight. totally say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what people want to hear. <laughs> That's how these businesses succeed. Tribeca Wine Merchants has been around for 20 years now because we were buying Burgundy when nobody cared. So Tribeca Wine Merchants opened their doors a month or two ahead of September 11th. And we are in the shadow of the Twin Towers. And so Tribeca was actually physically off limits to anybody that did not live in the neighborhood. Because there were enough people that were dedicated Berg hounds, Berg fans, you know, they wanted their wines and so kept buying and picked up allocations from other companies that, you know, in a cash strap time said, you know, we're not going to grab it this year. A good example of this is Salos. Jacques Salos was imported, I think, by Michael Skernick and had a significant, there were more bottles here. And maybe it was 2008 when the economy was as bad as it was, they dropped a lot of it. And they said, you know what, this year, we're not going to bring in a lot. And then two years later, when they said, you know what, we want these back. He said, forget it. We've already sold it over to Japan. Like you guys are done. And so, I mean, you largely, you don't see Salos in the US now. And if you do, it's all gray market. During these times, Tribeca Wine Merchants was buying up these allocations. And are you getting the same opportunity now with COVID? Like, have you seen the same drop in allocations from other retailers and you guys are picking up the slack or what's your play there? Or restaurants? It was interesting because I think that's what we expected to happen, right? All the restaurants are closed. We can just grab everything. And it hasn't really yet. There's been a little bit more like DRC available and things like at the very high end. But I think a lot of things too, 
like Lefleve is a good example, or sorry, Ramonet. Ramonet came out and they put it in open allocation. You know, you expect that you can get whatever you want and it was gone in an instant. And I think that's something else we're seeing too, is because tariffs and because people are uncertain and cash is tight right now is instead of allocating specific wines, they're all going open allocation. And so it's first come, first serve, which for somebody that's been in business for 20 years is not pleased because <laughs> you want your historical purchases. And what are you seeing from the consumer side? Are you seeing that people are still buying the benchmark producers like the DRCs and Remedies and stuff like that? Or are they tampering down their spend and buying more blue chip kind of things that I know that I'm going to be able to drink and not need a seller for a lot that isn't as collectible? Like, how are you seeing that customer breakdown? The top, top super allocated things people will buy and they are taking. But by and large, the kind of the middle ground, maybe the 100 to $500 bottles, the Demontees, some of these, they're great producers, but they're available and they'll probably be available next year. People aren't buying as much. And I find what people are buying is they're buying things that they're drinking. So we are selling a ton of white burgundy. You know, people are scared of pre-mocks and stuff like that. So people aren't really hanging on to white burgundy like they used to. So I think people buy and they drink. Also, which has been really surprising for us, and for me, like most of what I sell is very classic and people are really broadening their purchases. We're selling a lot of like South African wines and Australian and... Is that due to budget? Price related? I think it's budget. I think it's price related and I think it's people are home and they're like, you know, they're opening bottles. And so they want to see what else is out there. It's a time to experiment. You're not going out to dinner and you're trying to impress everybody around you. A good example is Chakra down in Patagonia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're fantastic. They're incredible. And we're selling tons of it because it has Burgundy pedigree, but it's down in Argentina. They're amazing. And they're 50 bucks or they're 100 bucks. I really liked what you said about it's not people showing off, especially when you're at that level for luxury wines, right? And you talk about the mindset of the luxury wine consumer. Part of it is showing off, right? And so you need the brand name to show off. Peacocking. Right. Now people are just drinking at home by themselves with their families. They don't need to show off. So they're exploring a little bit more. That's really interesting, I think. I think so. You can still show off on Instagram. But then, yeah, no, I think it is interesting because maybe this is a very New York thing, but I think it happens everywhere. Like, you don't get invited back to dinner if you're bringing Patagonian wine, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> everybody wants the guy bringing Grand Cru of Burgundy, you know? We're low consulted on that. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with most of your business being email driven, how are you able to get new customers during this time? Were a lot of new customers from coming into the store? previously or how did the new customers find you before and has that changed? New customers previously, probably coming into the store, wine searchers big for us and probably events. We did a lot more dinners or we do kind of corporate tastings and things like that. Not huge, but a little bit. Where now it's been interesting, new customers for me specifically, it's been a lot of my friends and a lot of my friends' friends. And I think it's because people at first, like March, April, needed to stock up and get just things to have at home. And so people came in buying cases. And then I think after that, it's more, you want to support your friends. You want to support small business. It's a nice sentiment. You see it. I mean, you see it on Instagram. We hear it from people and the referrals have been pretty amazing. But now after that, yeah, I think that kind of wears out Our people are well-stocked. So we've gone online. We've added a chat function to our website. We've kept a lot of the tasting notes and producer info. And we're trying to keep the content up on the website. And now we're starting to experiment a little bit more with social media advertising. The chat function is really interesting. How has that worked? And do you have higher conversion than you did before with chat? Definitely. Yeah, it's much higher. And I think what's interesting too is through the chat, it forces us because we're actually on there. There's one of three or four of us 
most of the day. And, you know, if you happen to wake up early in the morning, sign in and it forces you to look on a daily basis at exactly what times people are there and what they're doing and what they're looking at. I find a lot of people that I chat with, I actually know. So it's people from the neighborhood and my name shows up. So I think it's kind of funny. They're like, oh, hey, Lauren. But it definitely, there's a lot more conversions and, you know, people want somebody that they can trust. Because when someone would come into the store, you could obviously have that banter and work back and forth and figure out what they're trying to purchase or what they're interested in or where they want to explore if they're interested in branching out to new areas. How is that translated for you in a chat format? Is that something that come pretty natural and that it's just like texting back and forth for you guys and, and you can do it seamlessly? Or has there been some learning curve there? No, I think that actually comes pretty seamlessly. The two main people on the chat are myself and Ben, who's the owner. And we're the two that send out a daily email blast. And so that's what we do every day is we try to figure out what wines we want to sell and what is the hook? What's the selling point here? Is it the price? Is it the scarcity? What is it? And so I think that's exactly what the chat is. You know, you figure out what somebody's going for and it's figuring out what that, you know, unique selling point is and putting them onto a lateral, if you will. So I don't think that's been so tough. I think, you know, it's always tough in retail. You have people that come in and they want something very specific. They come in, they want Veuve Clicquot champagne and no matter what you say, you say, you know, we have Billicart, it's much better, it's a family house. They don't care. They want the label because their friend knows it or, you know. So some of that stuff is kind of hard to overcome. But I'd say by and large, people trust a lot of wine is people just, they want to be confident in what they're buying. And it's not that they don't know enough. It's not that they don't care. You know, they want somebody to just validate that this is a good wine. And that's what the chat does. I think that's the real value of the independent retailer or even sommelier for a restaurant, right, is that knowledge of the list and the ability to customize and make recommendations that are targeted for what the person wants. Exactly. And for us, it is a small store. I mean, we have seven employees total and there's probably three of us that do the predominant buying and we taste every single thing that comes in on the shelves, you know, within reason. So when people ask us about wines, we know the wines. We've tasted them. We've tasted them for vintages. And what's been interesting now with COVID is Obviously, your suppliers aren't coming in with meetings, but they're sending wines to us. I've had them sent to my house. They go to the store. And it's been interesting. And the people that are doing that and the people that are kind of hustling and making it work in these circumstances, they're the wines that we're buying. Alto Adige did a series of three wine tastings for sommeliers mostly, but some buyers for retail. And they sent us wines every week and we'd all dial in and we'd get a little presentation. We'd all taste together at noon. And it was, I don't know, I just think it's so smart. That's how you get excited about the wines, right? As a retailer, what are you guys doing in that regard in terms of like expanding? Like, are you running tastings with your collectors or your customers? Are you doing live tasting notes? Are you running Zoom meetings? Like, how has that changed for you guys? And what tools are you deploying to kind of connect with your consumers? Video is something that we've talked about for a long time. Ben, the owner of the store, is really set on doing video and it just horrifies me. So he's done a few on our offers before. But what I've done that I think is super fun is I've partnered with people. We've done two now tastings with Petrosian, the caviar house, one with Bollinger as our champagne and another with Rare, Piper Heights like Rare. And we sell a ticket, you buy your caviar, you buy your bottle of champagne and we organize delivery. And then everybody dials in and it was a masterclass for these. And so you have an hour masterclass learning about the food and tasting it and tasting wine. And then it kind of opens up into more of a discussion. And they've been really successful. And I've been shocked at how much we've sold out of these and how responsive they are from these. I've had people come to me after the fact and say, hey, can you do this for my company? Can we do this XYZ? This week, I'm partnering with one of my clients and his finance firm, and we're going to do a big tasting. We're doing the Red Wines of France. But yeah, I think that's kind of what people are craving right now. They want to be drinking. 
interesting wines. They want to know about what they're drinking and they want other people to talk to, right? We're all stuck at (laughs) home. And so I think the tastings going forward that I'm working on, I have a Thomas Pastuzak coming in in a few weeks and Nicole Hackley. So Thomas is the beverage director for the Nomad Group here in New York. And Nicole Hackley is the Krug ambassador. And she and her husband have now been making manti, which are Turkish dumplings. And so we're doing food and wine, basically a dinner party. And you buy a ticket, but it comes with the wine and the food. And we all just kind of sit and chit chat about why the pairings work, why we chose the wines. And then it's open so people can ask us their questions. How have you guys promoted that interactivity in those? Because you're all in different places. Zoom gets a little funky when it's more than 10 or 12 people. The caviar tastings we kept to 30 people. And the first one we did, it was more of a masterclass. And I think you maybe had to raise your hand and you were chosen to ask a question. Yeah, that was a webinar. A webinar. Okay. Yeah. A Zoom webinar, there's presenters that can present. People can ask questions and you can field the questions, but they're not going to be everybody on camera like the Brady Bunch. Exactly. So that was the first one. The second one was more of a Brady Bunch, but everybody was muted. And then I think at the end, after the presentations, the mute came off. And I think like going to any masterclass anywhere, you always have the people that are going to talk a lot. And then you always have the people who don't want to talk at all, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm the latter. Robert's the former. Yeah. I'll talk even if I don't know anything about the topic. I'm going to talk about it. And so I think that dynamic definitely still comes out. This dinner party that's coming up, I'll be curious to see how that works out. Because I think you do, you get people kind of talking over one another. June 4th. Which is June. easier to do live or in person. You can have all these side conversations. But it's much harder to do in a virtual setting. Well, and that's actually something I enjoyed with these tastings because a lot of my clients that I've never met, you know, you have people dialing in from Indiana and from California while they were presenting. I'm back chatting to them over Zoom and I'm going, hey, it's so nice to finally see you. It actually kind of, it builds these client relationships. They've all been over email and now you have a face. So that's been kind of exciting. And I think we'll continue. What are some other things that you guys are looking at doing? Like this is an, obviously a time of experimentation and innovation. What are some things that you haven't done yet, but you are exploring or looking into? In general, I think this is something that COVID has done across industry is it's really forced people to catch up on their to-do list. There's all these things we've all been saying for how many years, like, oh, I'm going to do this one day. I'm going to do this. And for us, now you have the time to do it. You have no excuse not to do it. So, And because I think the price points are coming down and because the, the way people are buying is a little bit different, they're not buying the super expensive, they're buying more drinking wines. We're really looking at segmenting our lists and targeting our specific offers. And, you know, I think in fat times, it's easy to just sell at the tie end, but now you need to cater to a broader, more diverse audience. And so that's something that we're working on. Some of our part-time guys are doing that. They're going through all of our old web orders and putting those customers into categories. You know, so it's a really labor intensive, tedious kind of process. And you have to understand wine a little bit enough to be able to put them into categories. Can you do that with your e-commerce system, like export out customers, what they've bought? And sometimes I know some e-commerce systems, every SKU may have categories. So this is Burgundy, it's this winemaker, this area or price point, etc. that you could sort of like sort and filter off of. Peter, in 2020, you think you'd be able to do that? It's mind-blowing, the kind of things that you cannot get out of these systems. And it's not us. It is the point of sale for wine. Universally, there is no good one. Like there is no one that everybody uses. You talk to this guy and they're doing Square and Square is great, but then it doesn't have this functionality or you use Atlantic systems or whatever. And there is no one system that can do all of these things. A lot of it is really manual, which is tough. You know, it's, it's time consuming. 
And you need to have somebody that understands the content. It's definitely time consuming. Have you guys thought about, so in terms of building out those personas for your different user groups, have you thought about building that and then actually doing ad spend to start to recruit into that, at least for the new consumers? Because you can dial that in with Facebook and Instagram advertising in terms of soliciting. Once you build a persona, you can then work on targeting that messaging to that specific group and then pull them in and capture their data in a separate either email list or database or however you're going to track everything. Then there's obviously a lot of work to like chop up your existing user base and figure out how do you want to carve that up. Are those areas that you're exploring? That's exactly what we're doing right now. We're creating lookalike audiences. And so we're taking that back mostly from the website because those are people obviously that have gone out of their way. They've found us to purchase. So we're creating lookalikes from our web orders to do targeted Facebook advertising. And I think Facebook is probably good for us because I would imagine most of our customer base is 45 and older, probably more like 55 and older. And I think that's probably the Facebook audience. Although Instagram is huge for us. And even before all of this, you know, you post a certain bottle, I'm trying to think of an example, like Priya Roke. I remember we posted an Instagram picture story and the phone would start ringing at the store. You know, people saw it and they're like, how do I get this? And that's not all the time. I mean, Instagram and Facebook are super powerful for us. Have you guys done analysis on sort of like the return you're getting from that advertising? So we've not done it enough to have kind of a comprehensive result. We did a Facebook ad with a spend, but no lookalike audience. And then we did one with a lookalike audience, similar spend, and it was double the engagement, but the spend was not that big. So the double the engagement for the lookalike audience. Yep. And so I think, you know, in theory, you put some more money. Yeah, exactly. That's something we're very much right in the middle of doing. But what's been interesting in the past, I guess, three months since March, our web orders, it's 150% up with no advertising. Nothing has changed. That's just purely people coming to our website. Not email blasts, not people coming into the store, but just logging on to the website and buying from the web store. Is that, do you think, offsetting the people coming in? People who would have walked in, just went online and did it? or No, not quite. <laughs> but it sounds like the bigger issue is that that email blast, the actual purchasing behavior of that group has changed dramatically. And so you're getting an average price point difference that's considerably lower than you had in the past. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. You're getting that super high end tier and then that middle premium tier is pretty much dropped out and you're getting a lot of lower end tier, but you're probably getting more volume there, but not necessarily recouping that same revenue. That's exactly it. And I think that's been interesting because you are, we're meeting a lot more clients through that. And there's a lot of people that respond to these emails that I've never heard from, which is, you know, who knows how long they've been on the list. I mean, I guess you could look, but that's great. And you're building these new relationships that hopefully continue on after. But yeah, it's the offset. It's not quite the same. A lot of people think about, I mean, obviously the email is definitely a sales tool, but a lot of the stuff that you're doing on Instagram or Facebook is about brand building and building that community. What are you doing to kind of communicate and garner that community? Because there's a lot of people that if they bought their wine from you, they want to support local businesses. Like how are you enabling them to like, hey, make sure you tag Tribeca Wine. And are you doing things like that in order to create that virality so that other people that are following them start to go to you as well. And there's even that little small business tag, local business tag that they have on Instagram stories. Like all these things are huge. And if local wine merchants aren't leveraging those, they're, they're really missing out on this opportunity. No, I totally agree. And I look at my local store here in Brooklyn and it's something that they're doing so well. They're kind of going, you know, behind the scenes. Like they're closed. They only have curbside pickup and, you know, it's showing them packing. It's showing them with the mask. It's showing the gloves and all this. But then it's reposting too. Every time somebody has a bottle with dinner, you repost it. Which we do that as well. But I think largely our clientele, it's a different kind of thing. You know, I feel like you're more inclined to show off your hipstery trousseau gris rather than when you have something really high end, like maybe you're not. I don't know. Maybe that's not true. 
But no, I think that is important. And even last night I ordered pizza from Luke Colley and I posted a picture of Luke Colley with McCary horses, sparkling wine. And within, I think within 20 minutes of me posting it, Luke Colley had reposted it. It's so important right now. Yeah. It's huge. And, and so it's not about the wines even that they just buy now. It's also the wines that you have in your sellers that they've purchased from you. People are dipping in as long as their seller is on site. They're dipping into their things and saying, hey, well, I'm at home. Why not drink this? And for them to share either a tasting note or impressions and tag you guys is a huge thing. But encouraging that, I think, is the first step so they can know like, hey, let us know if you taste anything that you bought from us. We'd love to hear about it. And keeping that cycle going, encouraging them is really important. I think that's a good idea. But I also, from several customers, I've heard people are really trying not to be tone deaf right now. And I've heard largely from a lot of my customers they are going, you know, this is a tough time. And, you know, we've been building this collection forever. Like we should be drinking it now. This is the time to be drinking these fine wines because who knows when we can, you know, life is short. But a lot of them are not posting because they don't want to come across like they're having the best time. Yeah, I mean, totally makes sense. I get that. But with people also buying not as high dollar value wines, that are smaller family-run businesses, getting those wineries to actually make a little video that they send to you and they talk about what their wines are, things like that. Or, hey, here's how we're doing in the COVID situation. And being able to have that and share that to your Instagram or your Facebook is really meaningful as well because people want to know about the people behind the wines. And that's something that they get from you as a smaller boutique wine merchant. Exactly. That's what we try to do in our emails is really illustrate why this is important and why the families matter. And I think you're right. I think the videos are probably key to that. The message could also be they're drinking down their sellers and not buying anything new, right? So from that perspective of this is a terrible time, we're not spending as freely. And so we're drinking down our seller. And we happen to have this older bottle that we got from Tribeca Wine Merchant 10 years ago, (laughs) and we're drinking it. And you guys could say, when you're ready, we're around to restock. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just like what you guys are doing on the chat channel on, on the website, like doing that over Instagram, like doing that through DMs or video chat or through Instagram, which is totally possible now. I mean, I have it when we chatted through Instagram, it popped up into my phone book. And I was like, with your Instagram username, I was like, it was in my call registry. I was like, oh, fish guts wine. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't realize that was a functionality there. Oh, that's fascinating. Like it was just a regular phone call but it was a video chat through Instagram. And that's totally an avenue. Like I think being multi-channel in terms of letting a consumer talk to you wherever they're at is huge in terms of making that. Like you just want to lower those barriers to reach out to your consumers. Making sure you expose those channels and letting users know that that's possible, I think is really important as well. Well, and funny you say that. Even though retail is booming and small retail is not maybe so much, and everybody's like, you're working harder and you're working harder, but everybody else is home too. And so as a salesperson, my phone is constantly ringing. I have people reaching out to me all the time, personally, just saying like what they're drinking or have you had this? And it's so nice, but it's also, it's so exhausting because there's just, you're working so hard to get these emails done and all this. And it's just, there's not enough hours in the day. So it sounds like there have been a lot more activity going on. Have there been... Offline, right? Anything super interesting or funny that people asked you? What's the weirdest request you got? We've not gotten anything super weird. I think it's more people have been really sweet and thoughtful. Like I'm saying, like my friends have gotten in touch and they're ordering cases for themselves. They're ordering cases for their families and their friends, especially in New York. People that don't live in New York, you know, we come up with the Google searches. Google Tribeca wine were the first ones. And people are sending bottles just saying, hey, we know that you're in the epicenter, you know, how you doing? This will help you get through. So that's been pretty amazing. In terms of weird, not 
really. Every once in a while, we have people asking, like, you know, can you send beer or something? Which in New York, you can't do. But not so weird. More just thoughtful and nice. That's the best of humanity coming out. Yeah, that's better than belligerent and upset, like you mentioned with the guy with the mask. <laughs> so. We've had a few people that get a little upset, like they can't come in the store without a mask and that kind of stuff. And then a few people have gotten a little bit upset that we're not open for just regular walk-ins. But I think that's hugely the exception. Most people understand that that's to keep our staff safe. So what does the new normal look like as things start to open up again? I think this digital tasting thing is going to continue on. I think it's so easy to connect with suppliers and You know, I've seen you have your winemakers in South Africa and France and Italy on these Instagram lives and in Zoom chats. And I think that kind of stuff will continue on. It's just so easy. I think retail will still be strong. I think people like going to their local retailer. I think they like talking to people and I think they like looking at the bottles and people keep saying retail is dead. But I think in wine, there is very much a human aspect in because wine is meant for sharing, you know, that's part of the whole experience. You know, you want to talk to somebody about why you picked it out and then bring it home and explain that to your family or your friends. And I don't think that'll change, but... Is the cost of doing business higher with just cleanliness and sanitation? It's not that the cleanliness is more expensive. It's a time issue, right? Everything takes a little longer. So I think that's probably a real issue. And I think that's true. You're going to have to be really mindful about how many people, how many staff you have in the store, how many people are going to be in the store for a long time. So in terms of if this goes on for the rest of 2020, in terms of social distancing in some regards, what do you think the impact is to the business overall? I think we'll be okay. I mean, because most of what we do is online anyway, and you know, the website sales are up, I think that is something we are going to see. You know, New York is a very delivery-based city anyway, but I think this is taking it to a new level. People are having their groceries delivered every week, you know, where maybe you would do that a little bit with the heavy stuff before. I think people realize how much easier it is. And now they have your weekly slot. You don't want to lose your weekly slot, right? So I think we're a little bit special in that regard. I think a lot of retail is going to struggle. If you're not in a very central location, if you're in Midtown right now, I don't know. Can you pay your bills? There's no walk-in traffic. You don't have online sales. I don't know. I think we're going to see a lot of places close. I think we're going to see probably a lot of I guess consolidation. People are going to go out of business. I think a lot of the suppliers, the small importers, between tariffs and between this, how do you make it work? And you lose all your restaurants. I think the tariffs are going to be a huge issue. That's a whole future set of episodes once we clear this pandemic. Well, and that's, I think everybody was really hopeful that this pandemic would get all of the tariffs repealed and it's not looking like it. We do have elections coming up in November that could change everything. So you never know. That's true. On that note, I think we should call it. I do want to thank you for your time. This is uh, super great to talk with you, learn about how this whole pandemic is impacting you on a daily basis. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Can't wait to visit again in New York sometime soon. Yes, please. Anytime. The doors will open for you guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.